look outside of this congregation. And you had to look for a pastor that was unknown to you, someone you never heard of, someone you didn't know. You probably would have to get information out that this is the kind of pastor you're looking for from Scripture since there are so many different stripes today, so many different beliefs. And suppose someone sent back a kind of work pastoral experience resume kind of document and he wanted to be the pastor here but he wanted to convey some negative things about himself just in case you heard. So in this resume type document he would say I'm not a very dynamic preacher. In fact I'm not a skilled public speaker. Many people say when they hear my voice it's kind of irritating and annoying. I'm often involved in public controversy, and as a result, I'm often run out of town, and that means some pretty bad things for the churches I've pastored in the past. I've been arrested several times. I don't stay in in one place very long. I'm often criticized by many other preachers. I'm very unimpressive in appearance, and sometimes I don't just preach an hour. I preach for hours. Now, if that doesn't describe the kind of pastor you would be looking for, you probably know I just described the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul would not be a candidate in many American churches today. He doesn't have the credentials. He doesn't really have some of the outward things that we use to measure success in ministry or even as a church. How do you measure success in a church or ministry? Well, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is dealing with that very issue. These newcomers that made their way to Corinth are criticizing Paul. His speech is contemptible. In fact, he was not a very skilled public speaker. He was very unimpressive in appearance, and Paul would admit to that. Some things were true about what they said, but many things were false. They said he has no power of God. He's not approved of the other apostles. He doesn't stay any place long, which means he runs from trouble. And of all things, Paul has no letter of recommendation or condemnation. So today, as we look at these six verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll just entitle it New Testament Ministry, based on verse 6. New Covenant Ministry. And what does Paul point to concerning his commendation? Verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we as some others? Now, the some others are the newcomers in Corinth. That's the many in the last verse of chapter 2. There are many that corrupt the Word of God. There are some that are saying, these are the men that have letters in hand. Now, it's debatable as to whether they got these letters from an apostle. I would speculate to say no, or if they did, they forged them. Probably some important Judaizers in Jerusalem that they obtained these letters. So Paul poses the first rhetorical question. Then he says, need we as some others epistles, letters of condemnation to you or letters of commendation from you? Now we learn something about these men that Paul will address, not specifically, but he's alluding to them by the answer to the two rhetorical questions. The first answer is no. Paul is not trying to praise and commend himself, which means 
That's what the accusers are saying. Paul, where are your letters? Where are your credentials? Where's your letter from James or John? You were not there with the original apostles. So no, he's not doing that, although in this great digression, as it's called, he will be forced by these accusers to say something about his ministry. So he can go in two directions here. He can turn a blind eye and a deaf ear. Sometimes we have to do that. Just turn a blind eye and deaf ear. But if he does that, it will mean certain destruction for the church at Corinth. They are being gripped by these false teachers. Paul then has to defend his ministry, which means to some degree he's got to talk about himself. As awkward and as distasteful that is for Paul, you'll hear him through this section all the way to chapter 7, how he, he, he feels compelled to do it, he doesn't want to do it, but he must out of his love for the church at Corinth. So he's not commending himself, and he doesn't need letters of uh, commendation, which means his accusers are saying, Paul, that's what you need, and that's what they're telling the church at Corinth. Now, to make this really difficult is that the church, at least some of them, are receiving what they're saying about Paul. Some of them, probably not the minority, the majority had repented. Some of them at Corinth were actually saying, Paul, where are your credentials? Paul, where's your letter from the other apostles? So the first question is, why didn't Paul need a letter? Well, I'll give you three reasons. One's negative and two positive. The first reason was not because they're wrong. If Paul had a letter, it wouldn't have been wrong to use it. We find this in two or three places in the Bible. In Acts 18.27, when Apollos was there preaching in the synagogue and Aquila and Priscilla heard him, he preached eloquently. But there were some things missing, so they took him unto themselves and taught him more perfectly in the ways of God. Then when he was disposed to go into Achaia, the brethren wrote to the disciples there, exhorting them to receive him. They gave him a letter of commendation. Why? Who is Apollos? What is he about? So they gave such a letter. In Romans 16.1, Paul commended, it's the same Greek word, Phoebe, our sister. She's from the church in Centuria. Now, in the letter of Romans, he has a section of commendation, recommendation for Phoebe. He says, whatever she needs, assist her in whatever business she has, because she's been a helper a, and a sister, a succorer of many. Who's Phoebe? Well, she's a member of the church of Centuria. So Paul sends a letter of commendation, recommendation. So they'll receive her. They don't know who Phoebe is. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul said, When you bring your collection to Jerusalem by men that are approved by letters. The letters taken to Jerusalem with the offering, the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem, would commend, would recommend, would show the validity, the proof of where they're from and what they're about because likely they've never met these people from such a long distance from Greece, Corinth, to Jerusalem. So it's not that these letters are bad or wrong. Incidentally, a letter of commendation, it, the word means to bring two things together, means to together and to set or to place. It means to bring the letter 
alongside some form of commendation that then is to present or introduce someone. Now, our closest thing to that is a letter of recommendation. You've used those probably. Maybe you've written some. I've written such things for members here over the last 20 years when someone wanted a position at a summer camp or a scholarship, they asked me to write a letter of recommendation. That's where I go there and tell all these good things about you and say how I know you and how I think it would be good for the person to have this position. Now, if you ever ask me to do that, you need to know I seal it and write my name over the seal so that they'll know if you tampered with it. That way I can say what I really want to say about you. <laughs> That's a letter of recommendation or commendation. Paul doesn't have one. Paul says he doesn't need one, but it's not because he thinks they're wrong. Even today, churches use letters of communication, even though we have email and we can phone people. We can say, "Uh, who is this Apollos guy? Do you know him? Yes, he's a great guy. You need to receive him. Okay. Because we're we're transferring. Members are coming in. Members are going out. And sometimes we use letters of commendation. Now, there are two positive reasons. One is because Paul ultimately knows his commendation doesn't come from a letter, but from God. It comes from God. So he would say in the 10th chapter, 18th verse, For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth, implied, is approved. You see, these false teachers have their letters but they're not commended of God. The letter really means nothing without God's commendation. And that's what Paul is really after. He would say that for, in the second epistle, chapter 6. He would say, "...giving offense in nothing, that the ministry be not blamed, approving, commending ourselves to God as His ministers." The word approving there is the same word for commending or commendation. Paul says we are approving ourselves as ministers of God. That's where after ultimately, so with the letter, without the letter, really the issue with Paul is, am I commended or approved of God? If I am, then he will be giving offense in nothing and the ministry or the church would be free of blame. Now, not accusation. Paul is being accused regularly in the epistles he wrote. We can see that. But Paul's ministry is without blame. It's without a stumbling block to others if Paul conducts himself in a way that he's seeking commendation, approval from God. So how does Paul do that? He would say, in much patience. The word means endurance. In afflictions, in necessities or calamities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonment, in labors, in watchings, which means sleeplessness, and in fastings, which here is not a voluntary fast. It's when you don't have anything to eat. Paul's commendation of God by grace is seen exhibited when? When he's enduring the hardships as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, the grace of God is being put on display And God, through Paul's ministry, is showing his combination or recommendation of Paul, his approval. How? Because Paul is being sustained in affliction, in distress. Beloved, as a church, we show our relationship with God. How? 
When we live in a way, by the grace of God, that is without stumbling block to others, and in all things, in afflictions and distresses, and the list that Paul gives us, we are enduring. Because grace is the basis of endurance. So Paul is seeking his commendation from God, and that commendation is exhibited in the very thing that the false apostles were saying he was despised and weak about. I mean, this man's always afflicted, he's persecuted, he's run out of town, he has public controversies, and Paul points to that and says, that's my commendation because grace is the only way Paul could do and endure so much affliction. And then finally, he says in the fourth chapter that he's renounced, in verse 2, renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now here Paul is commending himself, not praising himself, not exalting himself. He's commending himself by means of truth to every man's conscience. What does that mean? It means Paul is so open with truth, manifestation as opposed to encryption. The Greek root word of encryption, which you computer people know about, is kryptos. That's the word hidden in verse 2. We're not encrypting the gospel. You know, that's when you change, they get in trouble here, I think the code into another form so it's a secret and people can't hack you. Paul said, I'm not doing that with the gospel. We're not encrypting anything. We're not handling the word of God crackly or adulterating it, mixing things with it so you really can't know what it's about. No, Openly, we commend ourselves with truth to your conscience. So if you will just listen to what Paul says and look at his life, your own conscience will tell you that man's legit, as you young people say. He's genuine. He's telling us the truth. Now, I don't believe it. I don't want anything to do with it, but he's who he says he is. But more importantly, Paul is commending himself in the sight of God. That letter is okay. But these false teachers have their letters, but in the sight of God, they have no commendation. They have no approval. They have no credentials in the sight of God. And the last reason, this is the last positive, is the reason I think Paul didn't bring a letter, didn't need a letter, because he already had one. Paul already has a letter, and that's in verse 2. You are our epistle or letter written in our hearts, known and read of all men. That's a remarkable statement for a number of reasons. First, imagine the Corinthians reading this public letter aloud, which they did, and they get to verse 1 and say, okay, Paul's not going to deliver a letter. Says he doesn't need one, apparently doesn't have one. All he's got to do is call James up and say, hey, can you give me a letter? It'll help me out of a spot here. What is he going to say to commend his ministry? How is he going to justify himself and say, I'm an apostle. What is he going to point to? What are his credentials? And they say, oh, it's us. It's us. Now, beloved, how do you measure the success of a ministry? Or a church? Is it the size of the building? I'd love to have a 
bigger size building, but that may not mean a thing to God. Is it the number of people? Is it the size of the budget? Is it website presence? Is it dynamic presentation? How would you really measure the success of a ministry or a church? Larry King asked Billy Graham one time, how many people do you think have been saved and converted by your ministry? He says, I have no idea. Now, he could have probably said thousands, if he wanted to be modest, or even millions. But I think he was wise. You know why? The number of people that walk the aisle in the stadium is not necessarily the number of people that are truly converted. It might have been a lot less and probably was than he would have ever imagined. He said, the Lord knows. See, the only, the only way we can measure success is in heaven and know for sure. I've heard men talk about the millions of people that have been converted. Do you really know if it's stuck? Do you really know if they persevered? No, you don't know. The Lord knows. So what will Paul point to? He would say, you are a letter first engraved in my heart. Two things here that Paul points. Here's his credentials. Here's how God measures success. First, love. The false teachers have no love for Corinth. They don't even care about it. But they were standing there when this letter was read, probably, and they could hold up letters. Sophisticated letters. Letters of eloquence. Power and appearance and all the things that men judge as a standard of success. Paul will offer no doctor of divinity. He will offer no diploma. He will offer no success except you are my letter. First engraven in my heart. The word means to carve. It's a perfect tense which means some point in the past it was carved in Paul's heart. Permanently, and now the ongoing result. When he wrote this letter, amazingly, for these people, they caused him so much trouble. The people, he should have said, I am so frustrated, annoyed with these people. He said, you're in my heart. There is no success without love. I don't care how well a man preaches, what his following is, how many letters he has, how many diplomas. The false teachers lacked Love for the people. That's why they needed a letter. They were so little known and had so little character that they needed a letter to get their foot in the door. And they always had to go to an existing church to give the letter. Because there were no epistles they could point to. Because God's not using their false gospel and their mixture of Judaism with the cross to change anybody. Paul said, you're in our hearts. First he points there. That's a letter that Paul read about his affection for this church. He would say in the 7th chapter, verse 3, I say not these things to condemn you. As I've said before, you are in our hearts, both to live and to die with you. Could you say that about this church? 
as, Paul, as far as Paul was concerned, if his apostleship was over and he could just stop going from city to city preaching, he said, I'd just as soon live at Corinth and die with you people. I would breathe my last breath in the congregation with the Corinthian saints. Can you say that about any church? That's an amazing kind of love for one sinner to another. Paul would say in the 12th chapter, verse 15, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more I abundantly love you, the less I am loved. But Paul didn't care. He still loved them. The word spend means to be consumed, to be used up. First, he would spend his resources. He didn't have many, but he would use them. Very gladly would I expend or be consumed and use whatever resources I have. But then he turns and says, I'll be spent. My energy, my passions, my time, my very heart, every ounce of strength I have, I will gladly be spent for you. Why? Because I abundantly love you. You are my letter. You're it. I don't need a letter. Not that it's wrong, because you're it, church at Corinth. Could you say that about this church or any church? Now, remember, as far as what we find on paper here, this church, I'm going to go on record to say, was probably a little worse than this church. I mean, it was bad. And Paul says, you're in my heart. Was he just... A hypocrite? Was this a fake guy? Did he know he needed to say that? No, the false teachers were fake. Paul was real. How could he have such a love for a church like this? Well, he spent 18 months with them. He was living among them. He related to them. He had relationships with them. And then in the first epistle, verse 4, he would say of chapter 1, I thank God always on your behalf. For the grace of God that is given you through Jesus Christ. The first thing that Paul sees, the first thing he's looking for through the lens of faith is not all the problems, all the sin, all the annoyances, all the frustrations. He's looking for grace because he so desperately needed grace. He said, I am what I am by the grace of God. See, if you love the grace of God, if you love rescuing grace, redeeming grace, strengthening grace, if you love that about Christ, then you love when you see the rescuing grace in the salvation of other sinners. And Paul saw that. He says, you are my letter in my heart. Then the second thing he points to as his letter of commendation is, Known and read of all men. Paul didn't have a letter on papyrus, but a living letter. Do you know that you are a living letter and your life is being read and is known in all your relationships? What kind of letter are you, church? What kind of letter am I? What would people read into your marriage and your family? Oh, not that you're sinless. Not that the sin nature is gone. But a, but a, a gospel letter. And what would they read and know about the church of Corinth? They would see transformation. You see, that's the credentials of a successful ministry and a successful church. 
no matter how weak it may look, no matter how little money there is, no matter how despised and pitiful the building is, are lives changed by the gospel, genuinely converted. Paul says, you're it. You are my letter. Now those false teachers, what were they going to point to? The letter. That's all they had. That's all they had. Now imagine this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what this would have been like when some of the old running buddies of some of the people at Corinth had met them after this transformation. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 6, he would say, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? That's eternity. That's forever. That's ongoing. Unrighteous people can get in the kingdom of God, which is the church part, but they'll never enter eternal heaven. So Paul says, don't be deceived, church of Corinth. Fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind. Now I think Paul uses this list because he's talking about those people there. He always has a purpose with his list. And I think here he's, he's remembering the very sins that were present in the city of Corinth. They were, they were called, to be Corinthianized means to live by your sensual appetite. You can't get enough of sensuality. Paul says these people don't go into the eternal kingdom. Neither thieves, if that list didn't get you, this one will. Of course, idolaters will get you. Serving all kinds of lust and pleasures. You're in that. Thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, revilers, people who use bitter, harsh, abusive language don't go to heaven. They will not go to heaven. That's unrighteousness. You ever done that? You ever been covetous? You're a goner. And such were some of you. Amen. There had been a transformation. Yeah. Imagine the, the guy that comes and says, Hey, hey, let's, let's go down to the temple Aphrodite's. And have our fill of pleasure there. Like we always do every weekend. No, no. I don't want to this weekend. What, are you sick? What's wrong? No, I met somebody. Oh, you met a girl. That's what I'm talking about. No, I, I met Jesus. And I'm changed forever. You are washed. You're sanctified. You're justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Those are not three stages or three steps to redemption. Those are three aspects of the same event happening at the same time like a diamond with edges that you turn the edges and see different aspects. It's one diamond. Washed by the blood of the Christ, cleansed. Washing of regeneration, sanctified. Once and for all means set apart by God to be holy in life. But here it's holy position for holy action. Justified, a right relationship with God. A right relationship, not because of what you've done. These people were ungodly, just like you were. 
It was in the name of Jesus Christ, which the name is taken for the character and the work. It's through His blood, His work on the cross, and it's the Spirit of God that brings redemption. Paul said, your transformed lives is all the letter I need. That's all I need. In the second uh, epistle, chapter 5, verse 17, he would say, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new and all things are of God. A new creation. Beloved, God doesn't renovate. He doesn't improve sinners. He doesn't remodel sinners. He doesn't restore sinners. He creates a new creation. He does away with the old and puts in a new heart. So he's not improving people. He's transforming. And then what was the impact on their lives that Paul pointed to? Old things are passed away. Old ways of love. Old ways of talking. Old ways of loving. Old ways of living. Old ways of doing marriage. Old ways of doing family. Behold, all things are new. New way of living. New way of speaking. New way of pursuing, seeking God. New way of doing marriage. New way of family. Not, a, not perfect yet, but new. And you say, well, they had fallen back a bit, hadn't they? Maybe you say, I remember when things were new, but it seems like I'm reverting back to the old ways. You see, Paul uses a key word there, behold, which means to see, which is the imperative mood. Be seeing all things new. You've had a decisive departure from the old ways. Now you need to see all things new. They are in fact new, but you've got to see them that way. That means looking through the lens of Scripture, following Jesus as Lord of your life. No longer living unto yourself, verse 16, but unto Him that died and rose again. Living for King Jesus, not the King of self. Sin causes us to want to live for self in all of our relationships. We bring sin into it. And rather seeing all things new, we go back to the old way of using all of our relationships for one sole purpose, self-gratification. You've got to see all things new. They are in fact new for the Christian. Why weren't they still new for Corinth? And Paul had to write that first letter. Because they weren't seeing They weren't seeing through what Paul said. They had moved aside from Paul's word and taken the word of false teachers. So Paul will say, you're in our hearts. You're written there. And you're known and read of all men, which means I only point to the fact that you are a Christian. I only point to the fact that you're a new creature in Christ. I only point to the fact you've been united to Christ. You've been washed, sanctified, justified by Christ. There's my letter. There's my commendation. But then Paul, as we ask the question, how did this happen? Paul says in verse 3, I mean, was it just Paul? Paul, you're commending yourself. You're making yourself to be some uh, amazing preacher here. You know, you just preach the word and people are changed. So Paul wants us to know how this happened. So now he turns to the letter of Christ. Verse 3. For as much as ye are, which means viewing or sense or seeing that. In other words, verse 2 is is what it is 
seeing that you are manifestly declared to be the epistle or the letter of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. An epistle of Christ. This is the real issue of why Paul can point to the church at Corinth and say, you're my letter in as much as you're Christ's letter. So Paul uses the metaphor of writing a letter. Any letter writing, as you know, you've got the author, you've got the instrument, you've got the application, you've got the surface. The author of the letter is Christ Jesus, the Lord. He's the source, he's the creator, he's the originator, he's the one that does it. Hebrews 5.9 says, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those that are obeying him. Obeying him is the fruit of eternal salvation. Jesus Christ authors your eternal salvation so that the fruit of that salvation is now you're walking in the pathway with him, a pathway of obedience, a pathway still where you're a sinner that struggles with sin and there's real sin to be repented of, Nevertheless, a pathway of following Jesus. He authored it. He authored it for the church at Corinth. Paul says, this is how I had this epistle. It's not me. You're the epistle of Christ. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. How did you come to faith in Christ? Who's the author of it? Who's the creator? Who's the originator? Jesus authors eternal life because he authors your faith. He creates it, He sustains it, and He brings it to completion. So we're looking to Him as Savior, Sustainer, Creator, Author of our faith or salvation. Paul wants to be clear because they're accusing Him of self-commendation. Paul, that's all you can do is talk about yourself. No, I am what I am. My sufficiency is not of myself. You are the letter of Christ. You're his very own possession. The one who Paul said of him and through him and to him are all things. Christ. If there's any success in ministry as God measures success, if there's any success in churches as God measures it, even if they meet in a tent, it's because Christ is the author of this letter. He's the source. Second, Paul sees himself kind of as the pen. You are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, New Testament ministers. Paul said, we're like the pen. We bring the message. The word is diakoneo, which means a servant. We're just servants. A servant in the Greek, is one that offers a guest food or water. It's a waiter. It means a menial task. Menial means unskilled, lacking prestige. There you have it. I'm unskilled and I lack any prestige. And that's the way God designs it. Right? So that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of men. You're just a clay pot, Paul. You're just a pen. You're just a servant. We preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ the Lord. And ourselves what? 
your servants for Jesus' sake. Because God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in your hearts, there's the epistle, there's Christ, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm just a servant, Paul says. I'm a pen. Or if you would like, I'm a syringe in the doctor's office. The doctor, he's going to be the author of healing. So he injects the syringe by which the the healing medicine flows into the veins. And people say, oh, can I have that syringe? I'd like to take it home and mount it, put in the picture. Just, I love that syringe. No, it's dropped into the receptacle for recycling. It's just an instrument. That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 3, I think the ninth verse, we are laborers together with God. You're God's husbandry. You're the farm, you're the vineyard, we're laborers with God. Or he says in chapter 6, verse 1, We then as workers together with Him beseech you that you receive not the grace of God in vain. We are workers together with God in the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling sinners to Himself. Now it's not our work, it's His work, and God calls us to participate in His work. Many years ago when I lived in Maryland, my oldest son Caleb wanted to mow the lawn with me. The only problem was he was two years old. That presented a problem. So I put him in my left arm and I pushed the mower with the right arm. I was much younger then. I could do it. He participated in the work. Now, just from a matter of efficiency, I should have put him aside and just kept mowing, right? Now, I didn't need him for the work. God doesn't need you for the work. He doesn't need Paul. He doesn't need Barnabas. He doesn't need heritage. He needs no one. But He lets us participate in the reconciling of sinners to Himself. And so Paul says, we're working together with God. That's because that's the way God decided to do it. We might say God's a helper of our joy. Letting us have the joy of participating and seeing sinners come to Christ by faith. What a joy. See, Not needed, just a pen, or you're just a syringe. Just a plastic thing with a little needle. No power there at all. It's the message of the gospel that Paul is ministering that's going to be used by the author, which brings us to the next point. It's Christ the author. Paul is just a servant. The gospel is ministered by him. Then what happens? Written not with ink, with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. In this day, there was writing with a stylus in wax and clay tablets. There was writing with a chisel in stone and rock, chiseled out. There's writing with a pen, a reed stalk cut to the size of a pen with a slit in it to dip in the ink well to apply then the ink to the papyrus. But here it's not written with ink. It's written by the Spirit of the living God. And here... The surface is not papyrus. It's fleshy tables of the heart. It's like the song that we just sang. Had no eyes to see. Had no taste of heaven. Then the Spirit gave me life. Opened up your word to me. That's the work of Christ. 
the work of the Spirit. This is language that is alluding in the Old Testament to the New Covenant, for which Paul in this chapter is going to contrast with the Old Covenant. Because the Old Covenant is gone forever. It's history. It's, it's nada. It has no power. None. So we would say in Ezekiel 11 and 36, the day is coming when I will put a new heart in you and a new spirit. I will take out the heart of stone out of your flesh and put in a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh is pliable. It's moldable. A heart of stone is just that. It's like water running off the back of a duck, right? Doesn't penetrate, doesn't get in. It's hard, it's stony. In Jeremiah 31, the language of the new covenant, which Paul will capture in verse 6 when he says, God has made us able ministers of the New Testament. What is this new covenant? It's not of the letter. It's not written in stones. It's of the Spirit because the letter kills. The Spirit gives life. Those two tablets of stone God had written with His finger, the Ten Commandments, the moral law. When Moses came down from the mount, He broke them, symbolizing They were breaking God's law. They had been breaking God's law before they ever got to Mount Sinai. And then God told Moses to make two more tablets. Here Paul is saying, it's not written like a letter in stone or papyrus or some other surface. It's written in the heart. Fleshly tables of the heart. Now what does that mean? What does that do for us? Why does God use that language? Is God right in your heart? Do not kill, do not steal, do not commit adultery, don't bear false witness. Don't kill your neighbor's uh, don't take your neighbor's life, don't take your neighbor's wife, as we've said, don't, don't steal from your neighbor. Don't bear false witness about your neighbor. So God writes that in your heart. Takes out a heart of stone, puts in a new heart, reprograms it. It's a new heart programmed with this information. That's what the covenant says, Jeremiah 31. The new covenant will not be like the old covenant. When I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, which covenant they broke, although I wasn't a husband to them. But the new covenant, I'm going to write it in their mind and hearts. Paul says it's not written with ink, but it's written by the Spirit of God in the heart, just like the prophecy of the new covenant said. This is the new covenant ministry. This is where we have hope. Right? So what does that do when God does that? See, the problem, your problem is not killing. We may have killed a lot of people with our words, but that's not your problem. And your problem is not adultery. Your, your problem is not pornography. I'm telling you, it's not. That's only a symptom of your problem. Your problem is not fornication. Your problem is not homosexuality. That's not the problem. It's deeper than that. Your problem is not lying about your neighbor all the time. Your problem is love. It's love. You don't love God. And that's the first great commandment. See, God's not saying, I'm going to write these laws in your heart. Write that. He's saying, you're going to know me from the least to the greatest. You're going to see my supremacy. You're going to delight in knowing God like the Godhead does and that's going to give you power not to kill your neighbor and not to take your neighbor's wife and not to say that to your neighbor and not to watch pornography because now you've found a husband that satisfies. Isn't that what God said what the problem was? 
I was a husband to you. You broke my covenant. Why? Because like a wife that's just not satisfied. Now that could go the other way, but God is male and so it's husband. I'm not satisfied with your provision. I'm not satisfied with your love. I'm not satisfied with the house. I'm not satisfied with anything you are. I'll go find another lover. That's why you don't love your neighbor. Your problem is not killing and stealing and adultery and pornography and fornication and homosexuality. Your problem is love. You're not satisfied. And you can't be. So what's the New Testament ministry? Paul's just preaching. He's preaching. And some people it's death. All of a sudden, at Corinth, it became life. The love of God was implanted. The scale over the eyes spiritually came off. And they saw the supremacy of the love of God in Christ. And it melted their heart. And now they're being satisfied with all that Jesus is. As they behold Him with an open face, verse 13, 18, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord. What's that supposed to be like? What's that experience? They are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another because the Spirit has put a new heart in and the Spirit is going to transform. Not with letters, not with false gospels, but with the true gospel of Christ. Our problem is we don't love God. And when the letter comes to a heart of stone, it meets with rebellion, moralism, legalism, lasciviousness, hatred. It doesn't penetrate. It just kills. But when the Spirit gives life and writes the law in the heart, it's the law of love. Now, with a new heart, we're transformed by what? Love. The way to transform your relationships is not to work on the relationship. Not first. It's to be satisfied with God. It's to go to the Bible and see Christ, Christ in it. So that as you see Him, it begins to mold you and shape you and transform you into something you can't be without Christ. But Paul says, you are our letter. Actually, You're the letter of Christ. Ministered by us, we're just pens. Not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Here's Paul's confidence. Here's his competence. The word trust is confidence. Now they say, Paul, you're not competent. Paul's already said, you know what? You're right. Who is sufficient for these things? Chapter 2, verse 16. But then he says in verse 5, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency, our competence is of God. He's made us able ministers of the New Testament. So Paul balances his ministry with, I'm not sufficient. Who's qualified? Who's able? Who's enough? Who can do this? Death and life? No one. Now, hanging on to that like a, like a balanced beam pole on a high wire, he hangs on to that no sufficiency to sufficiency. Our sufficiency is of God. If he lets go of one, he falls. If he lets go of the other, he falls. So he's balanced. He's made us able ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills 
because that's what it's designed to do. But the Spirit gives life. And then Paul, in the rest of the chapter, is going to contrast the letter or the Mosaic age, which is gone for good, not coming back, and its powerlessness, although it had glory attached to it, with the new covenant that's here to stay. And the conclusion Paul draws, verse 12, seeing then that we have such hope, we are bold, we have great plainness of speech. Beloved, how do you measure success? Big building is not bad. Large congregation is not bad. That's no measure. It's when people are genuinely transformed by the message of the gospel. That's why Paul will not corrupt the word of God. That's why he renounces the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Because God uses that message as he ministers it for transformation and conversion and salvation. And that's the hope we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. We thank you, Lord. We're part of this New Testament ministry. We are a New Testament church. And we want to live and be known and be read of all men that you have genuinely transformed us, that we're not just nominal Christians. We're not just Christians in name. We're not just wearing a Christian on a shirt or a cross around our necks. We have been genuinely transformed by the power of the Spirit of God through the Word of God and called effectually. And may others read the grace of God in us and see your love. Lord, may we be content with your love. May we see you as a husband that provides and is gracious and satisfies. And may we not turn from you into idolatry once again. Lord, may we be drawn closer to you in such a way, Lord, that we look to you for commendation, approval, and not to men. And we look to you, Lord, to measure what is a healthy New Testament church and not comparing ourselves with ourselves and among ourselves as these men did in Corinth, but comparing ourselves to Christ and resting in Him. Thank you, Lord, for saving us and pray that you would continue to do the work of salvation as we consider ourselves as laborers together with you and workers together in the great plan of reconciling sinners to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.